further ado, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce you, Dr. Charles Well, I was going to obviously thank uh, Richard, the Dean of the Institute for Buddhist Studies, uh, for inviting me to give this presentation, but I think I owe him a special uh, thanks for, for doing half of the talk. <laughs> yes, um, and I'd also like to thank the folks at the Jodo Shinshu Center for their wonderful hospitality, particularly uh, Glenn Kameda and Kumi Hadler. Uh, it's been a very warm welcome. <clears throat> when thinking of a title, oh, and by the way, the title of the talk I uh, originally sent in was Esoteric Buddhism During the Song Dynasty. When thinking of a title for this presentation, I aimed for simplicity. However, the simplicity of my title is deceptive, as any close look at the terms Esoteric Buddhism or Song Dynasty soon present problems. In my talk today, I'll argue that we need to take an expansive view of the Song while we need to be careful about our definition of esoteric Buddhism. Therefore, I'm going to start with a discussion of definitions, then turn to examining Zanning's view of esoteric Buddhism in the context of imperial projects to translate and propagate the Dharma in the early Northern Song. Finally, I'll turn to evidence concerning the circulation of the newly translated works and what the evidence implies. So we'll start with the Song. Historical treatments of continental East Asia commonly follow a Sinocentric narrative that minimizes the role of other states and foreign religions, such as Buddhism, while favoring an imperial and Ruist theology. But recent work by Tansen Sen, among others, has shown that the Asian mainland from the rebellion of Anro Khan in 755 to the fall of the Song was a multi-state system embracing the Tibetans, the Xixia, Liao, Koryo and Yunnan, states Chinese regarded as barbarian and peripheral. Further, this multi-state system was embedded in a network of alliances with the Palas, the Cholas in India, and with the kingdoms of Myanmar, Srivijaya, and Central Asia. Decentering this narrative allows us to see how texts, ritual practices, and pantheons originating in South Asian esoteric Buddhism became the common religious coin of East and Central Asia. It's clear that the circulation of esoteric texts, rituals, and pantheons in Song China is part of a larger continent-wide phenomenon. So what do I mean by esoteric? Oh, you're going to get the, <laughs> the slideshow of, I think this is mostly Yunnan. Shan, <laughs> it's really a neat place. It's over by the, uh, by the Burmese border. Um, when we examine Buddhist iconography, texts, and rituals during this period, we find that they are predominantly what scholars have referred to as tantric. But the term tantric is fraught with problems and has often been used carelessly by scholars to posit tantric traditions of dubious historicity. The transliterated term tantra appears only once in the Chinese canon and doxologies of tantras found in India, Tibet, and Japan appear not to have been a concern in China. And uh, actually, Richard Payne has an introduction to the volume on tantric Buddhism in East Asia, which kind of goes over all of these issues very nicely. I prefer the designation esoteric Buddhism, though this term is not without its own drawbacks. In contrast to tantra, the Sinaitic term mi, or mi jiao, was widely used perhaps too widely. As Richard McBride has demonstrated, the esoteric teaching was frequently used in China to designate the best Buddhist teaching, the bodhisattva vehicle of the Mahayana. Although there was a self-conscious esoteric teaching in Tang China, the yoga of Vajrabodhi and Amogavadra, it's misleading to think of it on the model of Japanese or Tibetan sectarianism. But it's nonetheless clear that the Tang teachers and many Chinese Buddhists since then have regarded Mi Jiao as a distinctive array of practices that complement those of the Mahayana. Called by a variety of terms, they deploy Dharani, Mantra, Abhisheka, Sadhana, and a host of new or transformed deities, all, as Robert Gemello recently put it, and uh, now I'm quoting, undergirded by a deeply sacramental vision of the mundane and transmundane efficacy 
of consecrated material and corporeal things, a vision implicit in the central notion of blessing or empowerment, jaja uh, or kaji, and all harnessed to the pursuit of especially expeditious accomplishment of the path, unquote. Jamelo's evocation is right on the mark, but we have to construct our definition with care. One such definition has been advanced by Ronald Davidson, who argues that esoteric Buddhism builds on pre-existing elements of Buddhist tradition, but nonetheless emerges as a distinctive religious movement during the latter half of the seventh century. Reflecting the world of medieval Indian Samanta feudalism, new esoteric texts and mandalas in them transpose the notion of the ruler to the realm of religious ritual. Esoteric Buddhism touted itself as the way of secret mantras, the Guya Mantrayana, analogous to the Mahayana's self-description as the way of the Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattvayana. It insisted on an immutable master-disciple bond, employed royal acts of consecration, and used elaborate mandalas in which the meditator was to envision himself as the Buddha in a field of subordinate Buddhas. New scriptures were rapidly composed, and they developed rituals, particularly fire sacrifice, for the purpose of codified, a codified series of soteriological and non-soteriological acts, and ultimately institutionalized this material in Buddhist monasteries. A prominent feature of these texts is the role of fierce manifestations of the bodhisattvas, the vidyarajas, and their aid in reaching mundane objectives. Although most of these features can be found in previous Buddhist traditions, here they emerge as a coherent and self-conscious system. As I look at the reception and assimilation of this new material, religious material in East Asia, I see three analytically distinct kinds of phenomenon. I think I've reduced them to two, actually, on your handout. Uh, the first, involving the yoga teaching, or Vajrayana, promoted by Vajrabodhi and Amogavadra and their disciples in the tongue, we see the full range of attributes mentioned above, access to the teachings through progressively restricted Abhisheka and so forth, clearly based on a South Asian template. Yet Amogavadra and his disciples can be cited for a range of adaptations from the revamping of Chinese Apocrypha to innovations in language. Amogavadra's disciples also propagated a lineage of patriarchs stretching back to Mahavairochana, further attesting to the self-conscious sense of a distinctive teaching. Second part, um, adaptation, appropriation, and transformation are the overriding realities once this material is in circulation in a culture, and texts and practices are adapted and combined under the sway of the indigenous cultural logic and institutions. While the Chinese origin of the well-known dual mandala system articulated by Kukai remains speculative at best, there are other distinctively Chinese developments that include, including the production of a host of ritual manuals during the ninth century that are witness to Chinese innovation. These systems employ Abhisheka, Homa, and so on, as do the South Asian esoteric systems. But the specific deployment of ritual elements and deities are indigenous to China. And then C, texts, icons, and ritual elements that were part of coherent systems in South Asia were often as not disassembled in East Asia and their elements incorporated into already established intellectual and ritual systems notably those of Huayan and occasionally Chan. In these cases, we're tracing the impact of the texts and practices of esoteric Buddhism in other systems. One very well-known example is the employment of yoga monks, yujiasang, in the rituals of the release of the flaming mouths, the uh, Fangyan co-rituals that people are pretty familiar with. This became one of the most frequently practiced rituals in China, was a major source of monastic income, was performed by Buddhists of all stripes, and was even emulated in Taoism. It's this type of phenomenon, inspired by the idea of the esoteric, that has had an enormous and long-lasting impact on Chinese religious life. In short, when we see a coherent use of Abhisheka at the hands of an Acharya, the use of sadhana and so forth in a way that would have been reasonably recognizable to a South Asian Acharya. 
I'm willing to apply the designation esoteric Buddhism. Otherwise, what we're looking at is the recycling of esoteric deities, rites, and so forth in non-esoteric systems. So that's the definitional part. So I'm going to switch to Zanning now. Zanning, the great northern Song exegete and monastic leader, <clears throat> gives the following account in his discussion of translators in the lives of eminent monks composed in the Song Gao Song Zhuang. Here's what he says. Now, as for the teaching, there are three varieties. The first is the exoteric teaching, the xianjiao, which is the Vinaya, Sutra, and Abhidharma of all the vehicles. The second is the esoteric teaching, mijiao, which is the method of the yoga, the abhisheka of the five divisions, the homa, the three secrets, and the methods for the mandala. The third is the mind teaching, xianjiao, which is the method of chan, the direct pointing at the human mind, seeing one's nature, and attaining Buddhahood. The first of these is the wheel of the teaching, the following. This is the exoteric teaching. It, gives Kasyap, it takes Kasyapa Matanga as the first patriarch. The second is the wheel of instruction and command, Jiao Linglun. This is the esoteric teaching. It regards Vajrabodhi as the first patriarch. The third is the wheel of mind, Shinlun. This is the teaching of Chan. It regards Bodhidharma as the first patriarch. Therefore, those who transmit the wheel of the teaching use the sound of the teaching to transmit the sound of the teaching. Uh, literally, uh, yi fa yin chen fa yin. Those who transmit the wheel of instruction and command use secrets to transmit the secrets. Yi mi mi chen mi mi. And those who transmit the wheel of mind use the mind to transmit the mind. Yi xin chuan xin. Now, just after his treatment of uh, Yi Jing, Vajrabodhi, and Amogavadra, whose biographies make up the first section of the Gausam Drawn, uh, Zanning says this Among those who transmitted the wheel of instruction and command, which he's just mentioned, Vajrabodhi is regarded as the first patriarch. Amogavadra the second, Huilang the third. From him on, the succession of patriarchs is well known. Thereafter, the lineage divided into many sects, and they all claimed to teach the great teaching of yoga, the Yujie Da Jiao. Though there were, though there are many, though they are many in number, I wonder why so little effect has been shown. As I've demonstrated elsewhere, Zanning is replicating categories used by Amogavadra and his disciples in the Tang. But how he integrated it into his vision of Buddhism is very much a product of the 10th century. Between the death of the Tang Emperor Daizong in 779 and Taizong's invitation of Zanning to the northern Song court, a lot had changed. Excuse me, the persecution of Buddhism during the reign of Tang Emperor Wuzong, coupled with the centrifugal forces for regional autonomy in the uh, 8th and 9th century, led to the collapse of the Tang and a period of smaller regional kingdoms. The forces that gave rise to the persecution of Buddhism continued and emerged as a prominent feature of the religious and political landscape of the 10th and 11th century and was dubbed the ancient culture movement, Guan, and many of you know about this, it would see the emergence of a revitalized Confucianism. At the same time, various groups emerging from the mid-Tang onward and claiming the moniker Chan were growing in prominence and diversity. By the time of Zan Ning, there were already considerable controversies concerning the relationship between Chan and various Buddhist teachings based on scriptures. Certain religions, certain regions, such as the Wu Yue, uh, area from which Zan Ning hailed were dominated by movements that professed a harmony between the scriptures and Chan. Others, such as the area now in Sichuan, were dominated by more radical thinkers who rejected such notions. Now, where did I cut this to? <laughs> Both Zan Ning's involvement with translation and with the discipline would appear to have aligned him with the teachings faction in a Chinese Buddhist world edging toward bifurcation into Chan versus the teachings camps. 
Indeed, Sanning's lives and his outline of clerical history reflect an understanding of Buddhism conditioned by the sense that the Buddhist teachings had become a fully domesticated part of Chinese culture. Further, Zanning was heir to a position tracing itself at least to the Tang thinker Zongmi, that the teachings in Chan were cut from a single cloth. Zanning promoted Buddhism both to the emperor and to the Guan proponents as an integral and indispensable tool for imperial rule and for the flourishing of a great culture, arguing that the Chinese version of Buddhism represented a refined and perfected version of the tradition as a result of its long Chinese habitus. Zanning's understanding of Buddhism as comprised of exoteric, esoteric, and Chan varieties is embedded in a highly sophisticated essay on the vagaries of translation. Two-thirds of the way through his essay, he posits a s three sorts of teaching that I've discussed above. In the last quarter of the essay, he brings the history of translation up to the present, up to his time. From the late Tang, and discusses imperial patronage of the Shramana Fajin, who transmitted esoteric and exoteric teachings, and was instrumental in introducing to the court the monk Dharmadeva, uh, Fatian, and setting into motion the establishment of the Institute for Canonical Translation, the Yijingyuan. In these things, and this is uh, now uh, Zanding speaking, in these things the court may be compared favorably to those pre of previous eras. It's interesting to note what Zanding chose not to do. He does not divide Buddhism into Chan, Pure Land, and teachings, or some other taxonomy that we might have expected. Buddhism, he tells us, is comprised of the exoteric, the esoteric, and the mind teachings. What's more, his brief history of translation is tightly tied to the activities of the Song Institute for Canonical Translation and to the Tang Yoga tradition. First, Zanning has read Amogavadra carefully and has imbibed the lesson that the yoga teaching can be, a crucial, can be crucial to the defense of the state. He even echoes the rhetoric of Amogavadra's version of the scripture for humane kings, using its statement that, quote, the teaching has been entrusted to kings and officials, unquote, as a support for his vision of Buddhism as an integral part of the imperial toolkit. Further, Zanning follows Zongmi, who embraced the various strands of Buddhism emerging from the late Tang. Zanding's statement, to use mind to transmit mind, is a quote from Zongmi's preface to the collected writings on the source of Chan, written in 833. Like Zanning, Zongmi took pains to refute the notion that this statement meant the abandonment of scripture. And elsewhere in his preface, he appeals to the tri-karma metaphor to make this point. The sutras, I'm quoting now, the sutras are the Buddha's words, and Chan is the Buddha's meaning. The mind and speech of the Buddha cannot be at odds. Unquote. The apparent simplicity of Zanning's metaphor belies its unspoken complexity. If sutras Vinaya and Abhidharma, the Dharma wheel, represent the teaching transmitted by sound, and Chan, the mind wheel, represents the teaching transmitted by mind, then the esoteric teaching, the wheel of instruction and command, the Jialing that he's just uh, told us, must be the teaching of the body. This raises some interesting possibilities. For one thing, it recognizes the unique iconic mode of transmission and practice of the esoteric teachings. For another, it foregrounds the dimension of performance. But what sort of performance? Vajrabodhi, and especially Mughavadra, uh, deployed ritual powers in the service of the state, something emphasized repeatedly in the yoga teaching. Here they differed from Shubhakar Simha, and this, I think, is the key issue for Zanning. The role of the practice of the body, the esoteric teaching, is to protect the body politic. Thus, in this brilliant bit of synthesis, Zanning evokes the tri-karma hermeneutic as well as its esoteric incarnation in the body, speech, and mind of the Buddhas, or the three secrets, the Sanmi, while reducing the great teaching of yoga to a cult of protection based on and transmitted by carefully guarded ritual somatics. The great teaching of yoga 
literally embodies the esoteric ritual protection and protectors of the Buddha arrayed for the defense of the Dharma and the sovereign who upholds it. In the following chart, the unspoken implications are indicated by parentheses. We'll see if this is really going to work. So you've got to just leave this up here for a while. And you get the idea. So there are, there are some unspoken implications in what he's saying. And if you map them out, you realize uh, what's going on here. Although Tsan Ning had a clear idea what the great teaching of yoga entailed, his division of exoteric and esoteric is not based on lineage or doctrine. Rather, it's a division based on function and mode of transmission, and all three, esoteric, es exoteric, and chan, have their role. Now, I'm going to skip a long section here that has to do with the, uh, the gradual turn of the song inward and say a few things about the Institute for Canonical Translation and Propagation of the Dharma. Tsang Ning sang the praises of the song for its support of translation, and with good reason. The Buddhist scriptures were an integral part of a vision of a great continental empire centered on the song. Speaking seeking to displace India as the font of the Dharma on the continent, the first two Song emperors set out to procure, translate, and distribute all the Buddha's teachings. Taizu's successor, Taizong, founded the Institute for Canonical Translation, the Yijing Yuan that I mentioned before, later renamed the Institute for the Propagation of the Dharma, the Trinfai Yuan, which hosted four Indian monks, Devashantika, was later renamed Dharmapadra, Dhanapala, Dharmadeva, and uh, Dharma, uh, Dharmapala. The first two became among the most prolific translators in Chinese history. For the project, Taizong constructed a special building comprising three offices and support structures in the Taiping Xinguo Temple. Completed in 982, the institute was to survive for a hundred years. The circumstances of translation were truly remarkable and were carried out in a building erected specifically for this purpose. The and I'll, I'm, I'm going to excerpt uh, part of a translation here of what's actually going on. In the eastern hall facing west, powder is used to set out an altar to the sages with openings consisting of four gates each with an Indian monk presiding over it and reciting esoteric spells for seven days and nights. Then a wooden altar is set up and enhanced with a circle having the syllables of the sages and worthies. This is called a Mahadharma Mandala. The sages and saints are evoked and ablutions are performed. Incense, flowers, lamps, water, and fruits are presented as offerings. Bowing and circumambulating take place in order to defer, deter evil influences uh, prayers for protection are invoked. And now I'm just going to just briefly summarize. There's a nine-step translation project here, or process here that's really quite amazing. Uh, first, the Iju, the chief translator, sitting on the head seat and facing outward, expounds the Sanskrit text. Second, the Zheng Yi, the philological assistant, um, sitting to the left of the head seat, reviews and evaluates the Sanskrit text. Third, the Zheng Wan, Sitting to the right of the head seat, listens to the oral re uh, reading of the Sanskrit text by the chief translator in order to check for defects. Fourth, the Shudza, uh, oops, <laughs> sorry about that. The Shudza, Fan Xiaosang, um, carefully listens to the Sanskrit text and transcribes it in Chinese characters. Fifth, the Bishou, translates late Sanskrit sounds into Chinese language. Sixth, the Juewan links up the characters and turns them into meaningful sentences. Seventh, the Tani proofreads the words of the two lands so that there are no errors. Eighth, the Kanding edits and deletes unnecessarily long expressions and fixes the meaning of phrases. And finally, ninth, uh, the Ruwan administers the monks and occupies the seat facing south. Although, so, although much attention has been paid to the linguistic quality or lack thereof of the Song translations, we should reflect on the long preoccupation stemming from biblical translation with fidelity to the original. 
If the last three decades of translation theory have taught us anything, it's to look at the way the circumstances of translation and the target audience condition the final product. Although the aim of the process detailed above appears to be the production of a faithful and accurate rendering of the original, it's noteworthy that a significant amount of commentary and explanation is part of the process, a part that shapes the outcome through choices of vocabulary, metaphor, and so on. Further, the organizing structure of the official government monastery and more particularly the edifice built for the production of translations is of great interest. I was prompted to think about this uh, by my reading of the anthropologist James Clifford's recent work, Routes, Travel and Translation in the Late 20th Century. In this book, Clifford is actually using Mary Louise Pratt and her notion of a contact zone to explore the dynamics of museums and the cultural encounters that sometimes take place there. Pratt's contact zone, and now I'm quoting, is a space of colonial encounters, the space in which people geographically and historically separated come into contact with each other and establish ongoing relations, usually involving conditions of coercion, inequality, and intractable conflict. Clifford turns these observations to museums. When museums are seen as contact zones, he says, their organizing structure as a collection becomes an ongoing historical, political, and political and moral relationship, a power-charged set of exchanges of push and pull. The organizing structure of the museum as collection functions like Pratt's frontier. A center and periphery are assumed the center point of gathering the periphery and area of discovery. The museum, usually located in a metropolitan city, is the historical destination for the cultural productions it lovingly and authoritatively salvages, cares for, and interprets. Much like a museum, this facility was located at the Metropolitan Center and served as a repository for a collection of South Asian manuscripts. If we put aside our preoccupation with techniques designed apparently to produce faithful renderings, we can see what is a truly peculiar undertaking, one resembling a production line more than a monastery. And I'm going to skip a little bit here. Uh, indeed, although the translation process is framed by esoteric ritual, it nonetheless looks remarkably like situations described by Clifford in encounters between Native Americans and museum officials in majority museums in the U.S. There, too, objects in possession of the museum are brought out. Native Americans engage in appropriate ritual behavior. In other words, the presence of esoteric ritual is overshadowed by the entire building and the government presence of the Ejing Yuan itself. The text and monks have been museumified. What they translated. It's no surprise, given the time period, that much of what was translated in the Ejing Yuan was esoteric. Indeed, the range of esoteric texts included the new full translation of the Sarvatatagata Tattva Sangraha, that's by Dharmapala, uh, the Manjushri Mulakalpa, the Guya Samaja Tantra, the Hevadra Dakini Jala Samvara Tantra, as well as assorted ritual manuals for the worship of the likes of Vinayaka and Marichi. In numbers of texts produced, the Song Institute approached the Tang Dynasty output though on average the length of scriptures translated was shorter. Although both Dharmabhadra and Dhanapala uh, produced numerous short translated Dharani, these account for a fraction of the translation output. With the exception of Dharmapala, whose efforts were focused mainly on Mahayana texts, although he's the translator of the Hevadra, esoteric te texts accounted for roughly half of the output. Further, while the bulk of these were previously untranslated, a significant portion of the translator's work involved retranslation. The Institute continued to put out translations for another six decades after Dharmadeva, Dhanapala, and Devashantika left the scene. Even excluding the shorter Dharani texts, these four monks averaged over 50% translations of esoteric materials, including considerable transgressive material related to the Siddha movement and the cult of the cemetery, the Sitavana, or the Shritolin. What became of these translations, which is the $64,000 question? 
Unlike the production of earlier periods, these translations appeared to have stimulated little or no exegetical work. Further, although the Institute operated at various, in various ways for nearly a century, most of its production came at the end of the 10th and in the early part of the 11th century and was largely the work of those four translators. Based on this, as well as the lack of any school or institutional foundation, Ran Yunhua and more recently Tan Sen Sen have suggested that what was translated had little impact in China. There are several reasons that I'd like to raise that we should be cautious in our interpretation of the apparent silence. First, a great deal of work produced was in the form of ritual manuals. And in some way, these are not typically conducive to exegetical exercises. Second, arguments that the Institute ran out of manuscripts to translate are contradicted by evidence that the shortage prompted a scouring of monastic libraries that resulted in a surfeit of texts. Indeed, the more pressing need was for trained Sanskritists. They started running out of people who could actually read them. Third, as the new translations were produced, new blocks were cut and new scriptures printed. The printed canon and its updates figured importantly in state-to-state -state diplomacy in the 10th and first half of the 11th century. And the text certainly circulated outside of the Song. And esoteric teachings and deities were prominent in Liao, Xixia, and Tibet and Nanjiao at the same time. Can we accept that these texts were thoroughly suppressed within the Song borders while being promoted outside of them? Fourth, as Huang Qijiang has shown, three Song emperors spent a great deal of money and personal prestige on these efforts in the face of mounting criticism from nativistic members of the Guan movement. Finally, it's my contention that much of what we call esoteric Buddhism found a home in the interstices of already present Chinese Buddhist ideologies and practices. Although there was mounting opposition to the grand vision of the first two Song emperors, the institutes remained operating for a long while. These activities are well known, but the general opinion of scholars is that the scriptures didn't do anything. They just kind of sat there in boxes and a few repositories. Um, and one of the suppositions is that they sat there in boxes and repositories because they're full of violence and sexuality. And therefore, the court said, no, you know, this stuff's not circulating. We are afforded a unique glimpse of the Institute for the Propagation of the Dharma near the end of its existence by the Japanese monk Jojin, he lived from 1011 to 1081, who documented his journey to Tiantaishan and Wutaishan in 1072 and 1073 in San Tendai Godai Sanki. Forced to visit the capital to procure travel clearance, he spent considerable, he didn't plan to go to the capital. Um, he, he spent considerable time at the Institute, and his record preserves information concerning the new translations produced by the Institutes. While at the Institute, Zhou Jin spent time with Tibetan, South Asian, and Central Asian monks poring over recently translated scriptures, some Mahayana, most esoteric, and also discussing points in Sanskrit texts. Further, one can still feel the excitement when unwrapping and examining newly translated and printed volumes from the Institute. And of course, Jojin was in the process of trying to get these texts so he could have them shipped back to Japan. And you, you really, I mean, it's very interesting because you start reading this and you can just feel his sense of excitement as he, these texts are pulled out of their storage, you know, it's all mine. Oh, and I have a little chart to project. Um, I started reading this, and it's actually a very long document. I'm not sure how legible this really is. Uh, back in December, and I've, I've just tried to keep track of what texts get mentioned and what kinds of temples and what kinds of deities are in these temples and so forth. And I've got about two-thirds of them figured out, but it's rough going. Almost all of the texts mentioned by Jojin were translated in the early Northern Song under the auspices of the Institute for Canonical Translation. About half of these are esoteric. Most of the esoteric texts he mentions are short Durrani's. However, 892, 
is the Hevatra Tantra, a major esoteric text with a full range of Siddha and cemetery imagery, Dakinis, and you know, the whole nine yards. The diary also contains discussion of interesting temples, iconography, deities, altars, and so forth, along with more humdrum temples with 16 arhats and Kshitigarbha and the 10 kings and so forth. Jojin mentions temples con uh, connected with eight Vidyarajas, and I think there's one mention of a 10 Vidyaraja temple, and even individual deities such as Triloki Vijaya. Perhaps the most striking is his account of an image of Mahachakra Vidyaraja, Dalun uh, Mingwang, adorned with snakes and skulls. He has a staff with skulls and so forth. Um, he also describes a great power Vidyaraja in ferocious attitude with three faces and a snake in his crown. The first of these probably refers to a deity um, in the Manjushri Malakalpa translated by Devashanti. Uh, that would be Taisho 1169, but it could be also from 1169 or 890. The second image is likely from the Dali Mingwang Jing, Taisho 1243, translated by Dharmapala. It's abundantly clear that the Institute was still a going concern in 1073 with a contingent of foreign and indigenous monks on hand. Jojian offers us a glimpse at the texts and iconography of the more radical forms of the Vajrayana available in certain venues in the capital. What's not clear from Jojian's account, at least so far as I've gotten, is the extent to which the texts and images uh, are available and whether they were distributed beyond a few select government repositories. So now the final section here. Jump down to the southern song. In my discussion of definitions of esoteric Buddhism, I noted that while there are coteries of teachers at various points in time transmitting esoteric traditions that would be recognized as such by South Asian teachers or acharyas, the major impact of esoteric Buddhism in China may indeed be the various pieces that have been assimilated to other traditions or have taken on a life of their own. For instance, the Da Cheng Zhuangyan, Baowang, Jin, um, translated by Devashantika in 983, is the source of Avalokiteshvara's famous mantra, O Mani Padme Hom. It gets all over the place. Jojin uh, mentions looking at the Sanskrit manuscript of this text. So too we find a cult of the goddess Trinti as the summation of esoteric traditions promoted by the Liao cleric Daoshan. There's also evidence of imagery from the Mayajala Tantra, uh, T890, Foshuo Yujia, Dajia Wangjing, a text mentioned also by Jojin, as far afield as Sichuan, Yunnan, and Dunhuang. By way of ending my presentation, I'd like to offer some iconographical evidence for the circulation of at least some of the Song translations. Uh, in the last three years, I've made some trips to sites in southwest China. You've been seeing some of the slides. Uh, among the best known are uh, Baodingshan and Beishan near the city of Dazu. Probably some of you have been to these sites. Um, esoteric sculpture began to appear in the mid-Tang period, the early 700s, in what are now Dazu and Anyue in Sichuan. Toward the end of the Tang, the government ceded broad powers to provincial military leaders in an effort to stem the rising tide of chaos and banditry. One of these men was Wei Junjing. Wei had risen from the local militia and was put in charge of a large portion of central Sichuan. Over the next decade, he commissioned the carving of the cliffside ringing his Yongchang fortress on what is today called Beishan. The carving began in 892 and ran until 1162. The imagery is a mix of Mahayana and esoteric sculpture, depictions of the Pure Land, images of Avalokiteshvara, and of protectors involved, uh, including Vaishravana, um, Mahamayari Vidyarajni, and Marichi. Roughly the same time as General Wei was building his fortress, a charismatic lay teacher named Liu Bansun, and his name is, is, is an identifier uh, linking him to Mahavairochana. Uh, he was gaining a following not too far away. He was reputed to have 
focused on the yoga teaching promulgated by Amogavadra's heirs and to have practiced a variety of austerities, including various acts of self-mutilation. His efforts resulted in a reputation for sanctity and for having mastered the supernormal powers. After his death, well-placed patrons continued to promote his cult. During the Northern Song, precisely the period of the great translation activities at the court, local elites in Sichuan continued the tradition of monumental sculpture. Indeed, there was an increased pace of building, partly in response to the more settled conditions. By the end of the collapse of the Northern Song in 1126, deities and practices originating in esoteric traditions had been in the mainstream for at least three centuries. In 1179, a layman named Zhao Feng, uh, who was born probably 1159, championed the deeds of Liu Bansun and promoted a synthetic Buddhist Buddhism heavily colored by Huayan and esoteric traditions. There's also a good admixture of Chan in there, too. His efforts led to the carving of a vast new complex of grottos near Dazu. Over the next 70 years, local artisans, supported by the local elites, produced images and tableau that illustrated popular scriptures and synthesized current Mahayana and esoteric imagery. Prominent among these sculptures depicting among these are sculptures depicting Mahavairochana, Leo Bansun's uh, austerities, and stunning images, images of Mahamayari and other Vidyarajas. The first image you see is part of a tableau of nine fearsome and here rather comical um, protectors of the Dharma near the present-day entrance to Baoding Shan uh, Grotto. Has anybody, anybody in the audience been here? It is an absolutely wonderful sight. Totally amazing place. Um, the same nine are also found nearby at nearby uh, Lung Shan, where they're identified with the inscribed title of the scripture for guarding the Great Thousand States, the Shohu Da Chenguo Tu Jin, translated by Dhanapala at the Taiping Xinguo Temple in 983. These images were completed between 1177 and 1249. The next slide shows an exquisite image of Marichi, goddess of the dawn and patroness of the military arts. This is at Beishan. The image is dated to the Northern Song period. Although texts concerning Marichi had long circulated in China, Amogavadra, for instance, had translated one. Her iconography in these early texts is decidedly vague. In fact, her iconography is so vague as to be non-existent uh, or indistinguishable from any other generic female deity. Um, however, sometime before the year 1000 or 1001, Devashantika translated the great Marichi Bodhisattva Sutra, and um, this corresponds to a Sanskrit manuscript as well as to uh, descriptions that show up in the Sadhanamala. Her iconography there is very specific and corresponds point by point to the image seen here, including her faces, implements, smile, boar chariot vehicle, and so forth. The most likely source of this image is the text translated by Devashantika, a text that contains the full range of antinomian practices centered on the Sitavana, or cemetery cult. So, to finish up, I would argue that we've been missing the impact of esoteric Buddhism during the Song because, too narrow of, because of too narrow a focus and because of a search for sectarian institutions analogous to those of Japan or Tibet. Uh, so to I'll end with this. To paraphrase the, the lyrics of Eric Clapton, um, it's in the way that they used it. Thank you. Questions? Okay, so we have sometimes questions. When you were doing the nine steps of translation for the mm -hmm. meaning translation, you talked about the transcription of the sounds of the Sanskrit into the Chinese. And that was for purposes of chanting them, so that they would actually chant the What language. they're doing is they're actually transliterating the text. But why would they want to do that? What, what's the purpose? 
I'm not sure what your question is. What they're trying to do is, first of all, they're trying to make sure that the text is rendered accurately. Uh-huh. And they're trying to make sure that they're getting... Let me, let me reread it for you, and we'll see if we're thinking of the same spot. Um, let's see. Now, give me your question again. Well, I think that before you talked about the step in which they translated the Sanskrit into Chinese in terms of meaning, you talked about transcribing the Sanskrit sound into Chinese yes. sounds. And I'm interested in why they would be interested in doing that. I thought it might be so that they could chant in the original Sanskrit, basically. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. Um, Certainly, you know, actually, I didn't give you the whole passage. I excerpted it. But in fact, it says specifically here that they are doing exactly what I said. They are transliterating it. So, Hiridaya, heart, is being translated into Chinese characters to sound like Hiridaya at that step. Now, whether that is because they want to translate it, it's not telling me that. And we have a hand up back there. Maybe he can shed some light. Well, I mean, it's commonly known that in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, and I'm not a scholar of this at all, um, but in the, uh, you know, with the teachers that I've been with and whatnot, they really have a strong emphasis on the sound and saying the sound in Tibetan. And it doesn't really matter if you can understand it intellectually or you know the meaning. It's just that you hear the words and it has a certain force and impact. And I would just imagine that that's part of the condition. Yeah, and in fact, um, there have been a number of, I guess I'll call them systems, of using Chinese to render the sounds of South Asian languages. Mogavadra uh, put together a fairly reasonable and the whole reason behind this is for the sounds of the mantras and dharmas to be pronounced correctly. But I, your question actually has got me kind of scratching my head here. I'm going to go back and look at the text again. Because I think something else is going on beyond what, what uh, beyond the whole issue of uh, mantra. I have no idea the context, but we romanized, you know, for example, this is my whole Tibetan text that I'm Roman. Whole Sanskrit text. Yeah, they're in Roman. It's wonderful. They're searchable. So it's possible that that's what's going on. Oh, my God. I have encountered a situation where the end product wasn't a Chinese translation, where you would have just a rendering. It's, it's always an intermediate step. But it's an interesting point. Well, I was curious about how widely these texts from the later translation uh, circulated. Yes, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and particularly, I was wondering about how much of a backflow into Tibet there might have been. Because it's, it's oh, generally sorry. thought. I mean, the, the, the stereotypic image is that it's entirely separate, that there's a whole Asian thing, and that everything coming into Tibet was from India. And yet we know that that wasn't the case. There was a lot of stuff, a lot of interaction between the Tibetan tradition and the Chinese as well. Well, and you've got interaction going through sort of the, the northern route, and you've got interaction going through the Yunnan area, through Nanjiao as well, and there are people arguing about how much Tibetan influence is coming in from the southwest. Some people are actually arguing that there's none detectable, and other people are arguing that there is, and I don't know. The circulation question is rather interesting, because uh, as I've started to look, I'm starting to see stuff like this, 
and if you start getting enough little pieces, you realize that, okay, some of the stuff definitely circulated. Um, when the canon was printed, and there were four major printings here. There was a printing in 983, and then an update that picked up the scriptures up to the year 1000, and then there were two more. The last one was sent to Korea, I think, in 1083, the last set of blocks. Um, and each time they picked up the more recent translations and sent them out. Uh, these were sent to government monasteries. From there, you had people who would circulate them, not in printed form, but in copied form, handwritten copied form. It isn't until the, the Southern Song that the printing really starts to take off as a, a means of major distribution. Um, it's pretty clear that the more Mahayana stuff and, and the less offensive stuff has a pretty wide circulation. In 1017, there's a notice, I think it's in Fozutongji, there is a notice that uh, there is an imperial prohibition on a Vinayaka text, on a text uh, involving uh, Ganesha, which has some pretty bloody stuff in it. And people who have written on this have often seized on this and said, well, look, they, they prohibit it. But 1017, most anything you wanted had already been printed, except for the Hevajra Tantra. Um, and was already out there somewhere. Now, one of the things that I did come across as I was um, reading through Jojin's um, diary was he does one of these temples with some of the most uh, interesting imagery is guarded and locked. So, you know, it's looking as if, yes, there was circulation, certain pieces of it the government was sensitive about. And now what we've got to do is kind of figure out which pieces circulated when, how, where. That's the hard part. Uh, to what extent uh, Taoism oh. can be included? <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't even mention that. No, I didn't even go there. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh. Specifically, add, add, ask some more. I, oh, well, I had the, the mind previous to Buddhism, but of course, um, the, the Taoism existed already. Those who interpreted the new text would have been influenced, and perhaps political influence had something uh, to do with it, that were excluded or not excluded, but nonetheless, Yes, and actually there's an interesting political thing that I didn't talk about uh, in the oral presentation, is um, after the uh, rather nasty debacle uh, in, what was it, 1004, I think it was, with the Liao dynasty, um, and, and the Song had to sign a treaty which was rather embarrassing and pay tribute and so forth and so on. Uh, the whole project that those first two Song emperors had engaged in with the idea of having this Buddhist ecumen, kind of a, a pan-Asian Buddhist empire, looking outward like that, kind of went back in. And it's interesting that the third Song emperor performed the Feng and Shan sacrifices. In other words, he revived the old kind of uh, classical sacrifice tradition. Uh, he stepped up patronage of Taoism, and we're seeing, seeing a kind of escalation of Taoist patronage at that point. So, you know, there's both a kind of, there's a kind of nativistic turning inward that may have affected uh, some of this project. Certainly there were plenty of people at court who were complaining about the amount of money being spent on, on this operation, and right from the get-go, they, they were complaining. Um, going back earlier, oh boy, <laughs> all kinds of interesting things, um, because Buddhism and Taoism, particularly on issues of spells, are interacting right from the beginning. Um, I, 
for something that's going on tomorrow, I, I, was, I pulled out a text from the Guanding Jing, the, the Consecration Sutra, which is a mid-fifth century text, um, which is, I don't want to say it's, it's a mixture of Buddhism and Taoism, because the text itself has pieces from various kinds of, of sources. It has a, the earliest version of the Baishajaguru text in it, for instance. But at the same time, it represents a kind of religious world in which Buddhism and Taoism are in some ways fused about the issue of demons and getting rid of demons and the use of spells in getting rid of demons. And uh, this particular text, it, it's really a fascinating text uh, because of it, uh, because of this among other things, has as far as I can tell and as far as anywhere else I've read, one of the earliest, if not the earliest, uh, visualization of the self in the body of a deity, which is really interesting. You, you are to visualize yourself with the 32 major and 80 minor marks of the Buddha on your body. And uh, wow, <laughs> that's amazing. So. But yes, the Taoist Buddhist thing is going on. It's precisely over the issue of the use of, from the Buddhist side, mantra or dharani. I'm going back to turning uh, three wheels. Mm -hmm. I wonder if I understand you correctly. Uh, he mentioned of the three wheels, the three wheels of teaching, wheels of teachings and comment, mm -hmm. and wheel of mind. I mm. kind of understand the wheel of mind because he mentioned that Chan, Chan is Zen, mm -hmm. and a little bit on the yoga, uh, using the body, of course, mm -hmm. and for the wheels of the, the, the teachings in common. But I'm not quite, although it's uh, some questions relating to this part, uh, the most uh, Questionable is the wheels of teaching that he mentioned as relating to mantra. Because he, it seems to me that you I understand you, you are talking about the, the sutras and. Uh, oh, no, no. The, the following, the following is the, the scriptures. And this is one of the interesting things. This, this Lun, of course, there, there are chakras all over the place. But um, this comes from Amogavadra's tradition, the commentaries on, uh, on the Tantric Prajnaparamita and on the Humane King Sutra. And Amogavadra's translation of the Sarvatathagata Tathasangraha. He uses a term when, when the, you're generating the mandala and the various deities in the mandala are manifested out of Sarvata Siddhi's body. They come out and they manifest on a, a little mandala and then they request teaching. And that word request in Moghavadra's translation is Jiao Ling instead of Jiao Shi, which is how everybody else translates it. And that becomes gets broken off as a separate kind of idea. And you see it showing up later in, in Kukai's material and so forth and so on. And it's always connected with the Vidyarajas, with the fierce deities. So then what happens is Zanning takes that wheel, Jiaolingu, and also this wheel, which is already in a Mughavadra too, he has the, the wheel of the teaching and the wheel of instruction. And he adds this wheel in his own system to have three wheels instead of a Mughavadra's two wheels. But he has three wheels because of the three secrets, body, speech, mind. And then he aligns them with the transmission of the scriptures, Kasyapa Matanga, the first one to transmit scriptures, in China, um, with uh, the yoga tradition, the esoteric teaching, with the first patriarch, Mantra Bodhi, and the Chan tradition, Bodhidharma. Yeah, so he's, I do not quite understand why he 
you would uh, put the yoga only uh, for the body and mudra, and the way he liked it. While yoga can also be related to the mind and the, the speech, mantra. Right, and that's what I'm, what I'm saying is when you look at the way he's doing this, he knows because he was wrote the biographies of Bhadrapodi, Mamukavadra, and so forth. He knows what that tradition is. He knows the scriptures and so forth. But he's making it into something else for his own purposes. So, what's that? I think the purpose is, is uh, I guess I would call it a propaganda purpose vis-a-vis -vis the emperor. What is the role of this tradition? And if you look at, um, okay, in, in the mid-Tang, Kukai goes to Tang, um, China, brings a bunch of documents back to Japan. Among the documents he brings is Yuan Chao's long um, account of Bhadrapodi and Bhavadras and their relationship to the imperial house. And that account makes a kind of argument that if the empire is going to be well run, then the emperor has to have as his companion an acharya, the yoga teacher, as the other person. Now, you get up to the soul, and you notice at the end of that passage, he says, well, you know, we've seen they've all broken up into all these different little sects, and, you know, it's too bad. Nothing's come of it. And either he's making an argument, which is to say, how come they're so ineffectual, unlike the guys in the town? Or he's making an argument, how come you, the emperor, hasn't, haven't employed them properly? So in other words, this is, and by the way, this, the Song Gaosukong is, is an imperially commissioned work. The first one was imperially commissioned. So this whole thing has a kind of, Propaganda state. Do you see Tanning's uh, get uh, some kind of influence afterward? Afterward, uh, how, how long? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, in fact, but by the time by the time uh, the first two emperors are gone, it's all changing, and we end up with Inti Chan. Didn't work. That, that was, isn't that the traditional Confucian? Confucian, the uh, advising the ruler. It's the same, same structure, similar. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, it's all over all over Asia. You could say there's a situation where you have a ruler and you have some kind of person in a priestly function. Um, in South Asia, you'll have rulers with their pundits uh, or kuhits who, who are their advisors or their mantras. But they did not mention, they, did not, they didn't follow the structure of the Confucian structure there. Translation was that system 
Did they didn't invent that at, at the time at the Sunday? No, there, there, it was going back. Uh, translation through committee actually is very old in China. The earliest Buddhist translations were already dealing with people working in committees. Is that typical Chinese? Not, not quite this. This is really quite in fact, even, even in modern day China, there, there are two, two approaches to translation. One is, one is people who translate individually, and then there are people, you get whole groups who translate. I'm just trying to remember, there's a famous Australian novel, one of these big, huge novels that was given to a Chinese group to translate, and there was, you know, the translators. Thorn birds? It may have been the Thornbirds, and basically what they did was they literally tore the book up. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, you know, kind of harmonized all the But yeah, translation by committee uh, in Buddhism is very old. So from times of Kumara Jiva, I understand that they already had this system, but I don't know if it was so elaborate as this, but I'm not that elaborate. No, that this is. And not with the whole esoteric structure, which is then encased in an imperial institution.